Welcome to the Flathead Baptist Church podcast. It's the last message for the year 2010, which means we're all thinking the same thing, New Year's resolutions. And since resolutions make us consider the future, the best New Year's resolutions are the ones we'll enjoy throughout eternity. Let's join Clarence Hughes as he begins his message, How to Move from the Mundane to the Miraculous. Merry Christmas. Is that too late to say that? Nah, it's still good. Well, thanks for joining us. And um, I have the distinct pleasure of, uh, privilege actually, of delivering the last message of 2010. So, some people are saying I couldn't get through that quick enough. So let's just take a quick survey. How many people regret seeing 2010 pass away? How many people thought that was a really good year? Best year they ever had. Okay, a couple of you. How many people say good riddance? Isn't that amazing? And now we're looking down the barrel of 2011. So what do we do? You know, I'd like to share some insights with you that I've gained over the last year and some stuff that's neat about this sermon is it's really kind of just written for me. You know, I wrote this sermon because this is all stuff that I have to work on myself. And, you know, under the guise of you never learn anything new when the mule kicks you the second time, I thought it might be worthwhile to share some of the insights that I've gained over the last year. Because this isn't a message on life enhancement or making sure you're... New Year's commitments get made. It's actually one of looking at the opportunity to focus on the importance of God and recognizing that if we focus on what's truly important, what God wants us to focus on, then it goes without saying that if all the big things are in perspective and we've got our priorities straight, then everything else should just fall into place. So really the question then becomes is what does God want us to do for 2011? And I found the answer in a very unlikely place. If we go to the 15th chapter of the book of John, we read that Jesus was spending what was going to turn out to be his last supper with his disciples. And given that this was the last time that he would have together with them, you would think that that information he was going to share was going to be very important. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read through John 5 or 15, 5 through 17, and we'll go on from there. It starts off with Jesus saying, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, then you are like the branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands, and I remain in his love. I have told you this so that you may enjoy 
or that your joy in you, wait, I've told you this so that my joy in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than to lay down their lives for their friends. You're my friends. If you do what I command, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I call you friends. For everything that I have learned from the Father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that'll last. So that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Now this point is remarkable because afterwards these men had to move away from the people that they thought they were to the men that God knew they were. Because through these disciples, Christ was going to build and expand their church. And the message that Christ had for these disciples then is just as relevant for us today. So there's some essentials for 2011 that we can pull from this particular passage of Scripture. Number one, remember who you're with. Sunday school lesson. Jesus. Now, really, this is one of the main points in the entire Bible, if you think about it. Because in Genesis, we read about Adam and Eve talking to God, fellowshipping with him in person. They were in the garden together. And then mankind falls into sin, and we're separated from our creator. And from that point, the Bible then becomes a story of the length that God takes to bring us back into fellowship with him. And that story culminates with the birth, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. When Isaiah the prophet wrote about the coming Messiah, he writes that he will be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has always been. God will always be. And if you're a Christian, God will always be with you. And do you believe that? Think about the implication of this just, just for a second. If you have accepted Christ, you're a Christ follower, you believe Jesus to be your Savior, then the supreme God of the universe resides in you. And on top of that, he's not just there for the ride. He's there for us. It says in Hebrews 13, 5, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He's not an impartial observer. In fact, as John 15, 5 says, or 15, 15 says, he's your friend. Read it in your notes. Underline it. Christ says, I am your friend friend. Much different than what God would would have us to think about him is oftentimes what people think about God. Not a judge, not a king, not a father, not someone stern. Yes, he's that. But what God wants us to see him as is a friend. How do you talk to your friend? 
Do you talk to your friends in high, lofty platitudes with a lot of these and thous? No, they look at you like you're cross-eyed or like you had another head growing out of your shoulders. We often choose to speak to our friends as often as we can because it makes us feel good. Now, can we say under the same circumstances we talk to God, we fellowship, him, fellowship with him in the same way? But that's exactly what God wants for all of us. And as a matter of fact, as we read, he wanted to be our friends long before we even knew who he was. Before he even framed the universe in existence, he knew that he wanted your friendship. Now, before I go on, you know, we did read about in, uh, in, in John, and in full disclosure, we need to clarify something before we go on in, in, uh, uh, with the sermon. If we look at uh, the 16th verse of the chapter, we read that in John, Christ says, whatever it is that you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Now, this verse has been understood by many to be the gospel of, prior, of prosperity. And it tends to lead people to believe that as long as they tack in Jesus' name onto their prayer, they're okay. Matter of fact, I mean, it's really kind of this additional formula that allows us to pray for anything we want or anything we desire, like a new bass boat. And as long as we put Jesus' name in your name, we're okay. Well, no. I mean, think about it. If you're going to talk to your friend... Now, our friends typically aren't the people that we sit down and, and run through a laundry list or call them when only things are going bad or we got a big decision. I mean, otherwise, they wouldn't be inclined to be our friends. So when it is that we do talk to God, what does that look like? You see, the reason why Christ tells us whatever it is we ask will be added to him because Christ himself recognized whatever it is that he did, he did for the glory of the Father. And the disciples who he was talking to at that time had chosen to take up the same life and through him take on the same agenda, the same priorities that Christ had to glorify the Father. So it's not getting what we want it's wanting to do what we were created to do, which is the issue. That's why it says in Matthew 6, seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you well, or, or added to you. Or Paul to the Colossians, whatever you do, do it in word or deed, all for the name of Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What Paul's talking about is being completely sold out here. Not just simply paying lip service to Christ, but actually living, doing everything that we do on a daily basis with the spirit in mind that we're glorifying God. Now, what does that look like? I don't think that means doing anything radically different than what we do right now. It means going to work. It means going shopping, Right? but doing it through the, through the spirit of glorifying Christ through our actions. I mean, what would it look like? How we drive, how we shop, our relationships. I mean, it's a tall order. I mean, it's impossible, really, if you think about it. 
So where do we actually start? How can we make this applicable to us? Well, it says, that, you know, God says that if we remain in him, he remains in us. So if we follow that logic first, we should remain in prayer. Now, if you're not there, this isn't a daily part of your life. I'd encourage you, five minutes a day. Five minutes. You can take five minutes out of your day for the creator of the universe who gave you life and everything you know in it. It's a start. Now, you might think, well, you know, five minutes. You know, I'm going to start out with something like an hour, really kind of get myself holy, spend some good quality time. And what will happen is, is if it's not part of your day, if it's not part of your schedule, you won't do it. Five minutes. Start with that. Get into the habit of just spending time with your friend. Secondly, remain in your Bible. You know, now sometimes I look at the Bible, I look at this big, thick leather book with the, with the gold pages on it, and I get intimidated. I mean, where do you start? Really? Just out of curiosity, do you know what the most oft-read verse in the Bible is? Anyone? Anyone? Genesis 1-1. Why? Because that's the beginning. And that's where everyone starts. They pick up the Bible, they start reading, and in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then around Leviticus or Numbers, <laughs> put it down, and they think about picking it up again, and around December 29th, they'll start that again. Right? Or is that just me? Okay, maybe more than just me. All right, I, I, I got two suggestions for you. If you really want to commune with and you want to fellowship with God, you want to understand how he thinks and how he feels about things, pretty straight away, in less than five minutes a day, book of Proverbs. There's 31 Proverbs in the book of Proverbs, one for each day. So if you're going to take this to heart, tomorrow, 27th, you'd go to Proverbs 27, and you'd read what God had to say to you. Simple, quick, easy. Guarantee you, you'll know where to go every day. Even on leap year, you'll know where to go. <laughs> Secondly, if you can remember GE Power Company, okay, now it's all stuck in your head. Think of a little swirl on the fan, you know, the one that we couldn't stick our fingers in when we were kids. Um, remember... GE Power Company, which is Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Great places to start. Those were Paul's letters to the early church. All of these letters covered Christian living, discovering what it was that God thought was a priority and where Paul was leading those early churches. Just as relevant today as it was then. And third... Remain in fellowships. What do I mean by that? Small groups. You know, we have a number of them starting up come January. You want to improve your, your marital relationship. You want to improve your health. You want to improve your finances. You want to delve deeper into the word. It's a great place to do it. 
Now, where these become powerful and valuable for us is, you know, sometimes, frankly, we just need someone praying for us. We need somebody to hold us accountable. I mean, frankly, I mean, full disclosure here, I'll guarantee you the way I act when I'm by myself is radically different than when I'm in front of you. It's called plausible deniability. If you've got someone holding you accountable, it's easier. I go running with a guy. The reason why I go running with other people rather than by myself, because if I did it by myself, I wouldn't do it. I'd sit home and have another almond joy (laughs) and think, you know, it's kind of wet and rainy out there, and I'm just not going to do it today. So small groups are important. You need those people. Christianity is a team sport. It's not an individual event. And that's why it's so important to get in with a group of believers that are on the same path you are. And as the proverb says, iron sharpens iron. Now, we do these three things. We are, in a sense, drawing closer to God. We're communing with him. And God can speak to us through prayer He can speak to us through his word, and he can also speak through us through other believers. And I guarantee you, I promise you this, and James writes in his book that if we draw close to God, God will draw close to us. So if we remember who we're with, then next it kind of makes sense to remember what we're worth. The answer to that is we're priceless. And oftentimes we're duped into believing that we're not. But remembering what we are worth to our Savior, to God, and what our place in the universe is, it's radical. And it's important for us to remember. Why? Because as we see ourselves, That's going to frame our thoughts and our beliefs and our actions, okay? I'll give you an example, right? Do you see yourself any different now that you've been married and you have kids than you did when you were single? Do you do anything differently now? The entire way you frame your life, your thoughts, your beliefs, your actions have changed. You've gone from the person that you thought you were to that person that sounds exactly like your parents did. (laughs) Right? How'd that happen? Life, but we see ourselves in a much different context. And that's exactly what we have to do when we consider ourselves as Christians. How does God see us? Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, so that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into a, into a wonderful light. So if you're a follower of Christ, number one, you're chosen. You're holy. You're belonging to God. All right, if you've accepted him, you're on the first team. You're a first-string player. You're royalty. You are an heir to the most powerful family in the universe. Right here, right now, just as you are. 
God puts an amazing value on you. You have a price tag so expensive that only God himself can pay for you. In fact, Galatians 2.20 says, The Son of God who loves you gave himself to you. John 3.16, For God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. For who? Us. Why? So we can know him eternally. In fact, as I said before, he chose us before we even had an idea of who he was. Galatians 3.27 says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ. So we're God's kids, right? We're God's children. We're heir to his throne. We're royalty. Am I wrong? Then act like it. When we, no, think about it. When we truly accept who we really are as Christians... And what we have in store for us and where our value is and where God places our worth. It's not on what kind of car we drive, what kind of clothes we wear, what kind of house we live in, what other people think about us. It's not the here and now. And if we can divorce ourselves from the here and now and focus our mind on the eternal, that is when we live the life that God chooses for us. Because we recognize that what we're striving for and what we're looking for and who we're looking to please isn't bound in the framework of men. And that's when we live the supernatural life and not just the mundane day in, day out, day after day, month after month, year after year, until one day they're dropping you in a hole and throwing dirt on your face. Right? How do we do this? I mean, really, how do we divorce ourselves from the here and now? Because, I mean, we get blasted with it all the time. You're going to leave church, you're going to turn on the radio, and it's going to hit you. You're going to pick up the newspaper, it's going to hit you. You're going to turn on the television, it's going to be right there in front of your face. All the stuff that we've got to go out and get. Right now, I guarantee you, there's a ton of people over at Target, there's a ton of people over at Jansen Beach, down in the mall, getting all the stuff that they didn't get for the two prior months that they've been shopping like maniacs. Because it was the wrong color, it didn't fit, batteries don't work, whatever. They're out there right now, I guarantee you. What do we do? To combat this. Well, number one, count your blessings. You know, it is easy to forget. It's easy to forget, especially in this culture, how blessed we really are. And we have to take time to stop and reflect on what God's done for us. I mean, if you're saved by Christ and you're in his family, that should be enough. I mean, everything else, when you really think about it, it's just gravy. But let me give you something to consider. If you've got change in your pocket, if you've got any food that you haven't eaten that's left over in your pantry, if you've got a roof over your head, you are richer than 95% of the rest of the world's population. 
95%. That puts you in the uppermost tier of wealth distribution on planet Earth. It's not enough for you? But think about it. It's easy to discount all of that because there's always someone else out there with something more. And that brings us to the next point. Stop comparing. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Quickest way Satan can take any blessing away from any of us. The second we turn around and we look at someone who we think might have it more together than us. And it breeds envy, it breeds content, contempt. It sprouts bitterness and dissatisfaction. Stop comparing and count your blessings. What this does is this focuses our mind on what's truly good, heavenly things, spiritual things, rather than all the junk down here that Satan uses to trap us in becoming mindless Sheep. So, if we remember who we're with, what we're worth, lastly, it makes sense for us to remember why we're here. Really, you know, know, people go, you know, they run to some Tibetan peak somewhere to go figure out what the meaning of life is, right? Okay, anyone who's thinking about doing that, you know, traveling to deepest, darkest, Africa or going to Antarctica or going to some sweat lodge somewhere, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you now and then take the money that you would have spent on that trip, put it in the offering plate, we'll call it good. (laughs) But understand this. It's all about others. That's why we're here. Others. Understand, God's not interested in some abstract thing called your spiritual life. He's interested in your life. He wants you to be filled with love. Love for him and love for other people. If we go back in the story from John 15, we go to chapter 13. I want to read something to you. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet. Okay. You catch that? Jesus had just been given the keys. He was the man. He was in charge. He was God incarnate and he knew it. What's the first thing he did? He washed his disciples' grody feet. Think about it. You're watching the presidential inauguration, and, you know, there's lots of pomp and circumstances in the parade and everything like that. president gets up, puts his hands on the Bible, takes the oath. Next thing you know, grabs a push broom and a bucket, and he starts sweeping off the Capitol steps. That doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean... Obviously, there's people for that, and the president the most powerful nation on the face of the earth doesn't need to do that. Nor did the most powerful being in the universe 
did he need to curry favor with some very flawed men by washing their feet? Why do you do it? So they'd say he's a nice guy. So they'd put it in the book. He did it because he loved them. And that's exactly what it is that somehow we're supposed to do for others is to love them, both, both in thought, deed, and action. Well, not both, but three things. It says in John 15, 17, this is my command, to love one another. Matthew 22, when the, when the Pharisees were trying to pin him down on what it was that they should be doing, what actually is the greatest commandment? Is it the, keeping the Sabbath? Is it not taking the Lord's name in vain? And Christ completely does an end round, end run around him and says this, Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your spirit. Then, love other people as you love yourself. And it's these two commandments that the rest of the law of the prophets hang on. It's this right here. So if you were to, see, if you were to get God in an interview, said, God, exactly what it is, what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? It's this right here. Loving other people. And oddly enough, that seems to be, at least for me anyway, the hardest thing that God could have ever have told me to do. I mean, it's easy to love God, right? I mean, think about it. It's easy to pray to God. It's easy to sing songs and worship Him and to think at how good He is to us. Because if we are counting our blessings and we do have friends and family around us and we're in His Word, it's easy. He speaks to us. But where the rubber meets the road, where the, you know, where the theory becomes the practical, is when we actually have to execute this. And we do it with and for other people. Well, it's not that big of a deal. Well, you know, how does Paul say it? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, you can have the gift of prophecy, you can talk to angels, you can burn your body and give the ashes to the poor, you can do anything you want. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. Nothing. Doesn't matter how many shoeboxes you fill. Doesn't matter how many broken toys you mend for the, you know, for the homeless. Doesn't matter what you do. If you don't have a spirit of compassion and love, and I'm talking to me because I need to hear this as much as anyone, we don't have anything. What keeps us from doing this? Pride, fear, indifference. I mean, you know, from the pride standpoint, I mean, we, we can certainly look at others and say, well, you know, they don't measure up to these standards, usually standards we can't keep on our own, ourselves. Or we're afraid that we might be taken advantage of. Can't let that happen. Or maybe we just don't care. But speaking of caring, let's look at Christ. Let's look at his example. Now, he cared enough to come to earth, form of a child, of a helpless infant, 
raised under very austere environment, to be falsely accused, arrested, tried in the middle of the night, whipped, beaten, tortured, hung to a cross to die, with a spear piercing his side. Think about that. Why did he do it? Because he knew his reward, his purpose, wasn't for the here and now. He did it because he loved us. He did it because through his actions, we were reconciled to the Father. The Father was given glory through that. And through that sacrifice, we're made whole with him. You think about all these points. If you recognize why you're here, and you recognize it's for others, and you recognize your worth, it doesn't matter if you're taken advantage of. It doesn't matter if you have to forgive somebody for the umpteenth time or stand in line behind somebody who's obviously taking too long at the ATM line. You don't care. Your rewards aren't here. And if you remember that Christ is with us, and we are the living embodiment of Christ, then it becomes relatively easy, in theory, to divorce ourselves from the things of this earth and actually truly do those things that God would have us called to do. But we have to get out of our own way. And it's not easy. Simple to talk about. It's simple to see the logic. It's simple to intellectualize it and put in our head. But it's awfully, awfully hard to put it into practice. In fact, it's impossible. It's completely contrary to who it is that we are. And it requires us to fully focus and rely on Christ himself. Stand up with me and bow your head. I'd like you to just bow your head for a second and pray with me. You know, there was a lot that we covered, a lot to chew on. You know, and there's probably a lot that you're not even really sure about. Maybe for some of you, you're saying, you know, I'm not really even sure if I'm right with God. You know, as I said earlier, the central story of the Bible is God's love for us. Stopping at nothing, even at the death of his son, to rescue us from sin and eternity apart from him. You know, that relationship can begin today. It begins with just telling God he's right. Recognizing that you can't do it on your own. Realizing that Christ had to come and make it right. It's not something that we can do. You know, if you're a Christian, there's a lot to digest here. And we can't do it alone. And it's not easy. But never in the Bible has Christ ever promised that anything down here was going to be easy. But he did promise to be there with us and to see us through whatever we're going through. That choice is yours. And what are you going to do? Dear Heavenly Lord God, we thank you so much for the 
gift of eternal life that you've given us through your son, Jesus. And God, as Christmas holiday is passing, let us remember truly the significance and the magnificence of that gift that you gave us through your son, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray that you'll touch our heart. You'll give us a willingness to hear your voice and to to serve you by loving and serving others. Make our way straight for us, God, and always give us the presence of mind to seek you and to be in communication and fellowship with you. We pray these things in the most holy name we know, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Philida Baptist Church Podcast. From all of us here, we wish you a Happy New Year.